Romans chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him... And through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Have you ever experienced something or seen something or been a part of something that was so profound or so beautiful or so amazing that you could then hardly describe it to someone else. Maybe you have seen some kind of spectacular sight somewhere around this country, around the world. I've heard folks say the first time they saw the Grand Canyon or if you take the little boat to the bottom of Niagara Falls, right? That can be, that can be a profound and striking moment. I remember several years ago when Beck and I had an opportunity to go to Montana. And I know it may be hard for you to conceive of me on a snowmobile, but sure enough, I was, all right? Rode all the way to the top of a mountain. There we were, some 7,500 to 8,000 feet high. I mean, imagine the western part of North Carolina and then practically double it felt like you were on top of the world. You look out and all you saw were other mountain peaks and they were, they were capped in white. It was a stunning view. In fact, whenever we've experienced something like that, whenever we've had some kind of, uh, of moment that was, that, was that, that beautiful and profound, we often describe it like this. We'll say, words just can't describe. How magnificent it was. Or or maybe we might even add a phrase like this. Really, you just need to see it for yourself. I think as we get to the end of Romans chapter 11, in particular those last verses we read, verses though we read beginning in verse 28, in particular verses 33 through 36, it's as if Paul has now come to the conclusion of what has been a profound, dramatic, deep, sometimes confusing discussion of the glorious gospel. It's as if Paul now gets to the end of of wrestling through and, and, and plumbing the depths as best as he is able what it means that God in His grace has condescended down to man 
That God has intervened in the human condition of, of abject sinfulness and rebellion. That God in His grace has done the only thing that God by His grace could do. And that is in Jesus Christ providing us with redemption, the means of salvation. And that of, of no work or effort of our own simply by God's own good grace transferring us from being unrighteous people deserving of judgment to being righteous people, guaranteed heaven. Paul has worked his way through then what are the profound and deep and often troubling realities of God's election and grace, of God's sovereignty, and yet the idea of human choice. And, and we've been confronted again and again with, with, some of, with some of the richest and most profound doctrines in all of the Christian faith. And it's as if Paul brings this whole discussion to a conclusion, verses 33 through 36, composing a hymn, I believe words that were eventually sung in the early church, composing a hymn that in essence is Paul trying his best to capture in just a few words what has been the glory of God's gospel. Yeah, we have been on quite the journey, right? Some of you are saying, well, no, I've only been here for a little while. Well, our study in Romans goes back a few years, right? It's going to extend a little longer, too. But we're at an important moment. I mean, here, here we are at the conclusion of what has been the theological description and defense of the gospel. Chapters 1 through 11. Paul's basic thesis statement was straightforward in chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. This has been what Paul has now been explaining to us for some time, including forcing us to think deeply and carefully about the nature of God and His sovereignty and yet man uh, in our limitedness, how God is at, is at work choosing those whom He would save, yet at the same time man is responsible for believing the gospel. These, these have been confounding ideas at times. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time you've encountered them. Maybe for some of you, it's been downright troubling to think, you mean, pastor, that the Bible is saying that God has decided all who would be saved? Yep. And that same pastor is the one that frustrates you because he's the same pastor then that says, but, but don't, don't people then, aren't they held responsible for believing or not believing? Yep. The pastor, how do you bring these two things together? I don't. God, in His profound and bottomless wisdom, it's created salvation to work in the way it's described in these first 11 chapters. And though we are left perhaps with a lot of questions, I think it's fitting that as Paul gets to the end of it, he, he, though he's, he still will deal with some really profound theological ideas, he moves out of what is a discussion of this gospel, out of what is pure theological teaching to what we would call doxology, what we would call the language of praise and worship. Where else can Paul go but to express such profound gratitude to God for all that He has done in saving 
a wretch like himself. So this morning, we turn our attention to this last part. Before Paul dives in to the, the practical part of the book of Romans, and, and we, we're, we're going to get there. Chapter 12, you're, it's going to feel different right from the beginning. And, and I've already given you a warning about these chapters. Truth is, there are some parts of the Bible that are hard because they are hard to understand, right? But then there are some parts of the Bible that are hard because they are not hard to understand, right? In other words, yeah, we got the whole stuff about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll harden whom I want to harden, yes, that, that, that can have some troubling uh, realities to it that can cause us to do a lot of deep thinking and, and wrestling with the text. But Romans 12 through the end does not have really many of those things. No, Romans chapter 12 through the end tells us stuff like we are to offer our entire lives as a living sacrifice unto God. Romans chapter 12 and beyond tells us things like we are to love others to them someday. This is, again, this is the argument we have tracked our way through in this text already. One day God is going to do a great and mighty work among the nation of Israel, and this is going to usher in a great and mighty revival. If the hardening of the nation of Israel brought Gentiles into the church, imagine the harvest that will be reaped when we have even Jews submitting to the Messiah. So, so Paul's point, then again, is just to reiterate the fact, like, like, like he says in verse 29, that which God promises to do, His gifts and His calling, the work of salvation that God promised and guaranteed, God, God doesn't take that back. When, when God makes a promise, that is a guarantee. And so you can be certain God has done this work among the Jews for your benefit. God is, God is still at work saving people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. God will continue to do that. And then interestingly enough, though, as he, as he wraps this whole section up, saying, you know, again, this is how God has been working, this work of, of, of being a blessing to others because of the disobedience of some and then showing this great mercy to all when mercy is shown in even greater forms. He concludes in verse 32, For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Now, don't be misled by the word all there. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. God's not a universalist. Paul's not a universalist. You can't read Romans and really get the idea that Paul believes every single person ever is going to be saved. Instead, when he says he'll show mercy on all, that, that word means on all kinds of people, of all different kinds. It is in keeping with what has been the rest of the text. Uh, People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's no people group. uh, There's no culture, subculture. There's no one out there that is excluded because of any of these kind of geographic, economic, cultural, racial realities. No one is excluded from the gospel. It's extended to all. What I think is important about verse 32 is it brings us back practically to the very first principle in chapter 1, when he says, for all, God has committed them all to disobedience. It's a reminder to us that Paul started this entire argument about the gospel 
by reminding us, he took three chapters to do it, that every single human being is born separated from God. As Paul will say in Ephesians, dead in our trespasses and sin, that the nature of our life from the moment of our birth is a life in rebellion, contrary to God, and that every single human being, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, and this was Paul's point in those three chapters, everyone is in the same spiritual condition. No one needs less gospel. No one needs less of God's mercy. We're all in equal need of the same amount. So in many ways, verse 32 is like a final little statement about what is the profound glory of God in saving us. And so, this then moves us into what is Paul's concluding hymn of praise, as he moves us from God's gospel to God's glory, as he moves away from this theological explanation of the gospel to what is the natural reaction, what should be the natural reaction of praise of, of, of ascribing glory unto God for what He has done in saving us, Paul is going to do something, I think, with this, with this text that, that is designed to do then the same for us. That if we get through 11 chapters of thinking about the gospel, and we're left just thinking, eh, we've missed something. If we can go through all that we've gone through in 11 chapters of Romans and we think no greater of the gospel than we did before and if we're not brought to greater humility than we were before and if we don't have any idea of just how great was our sin and how great is God's grace and how magnificent is this gospel where God of His own free will, the only one who actually has it, by the way, of His own free will saved us due to nothing in us only motivated by his own love, if we're brought to the end of that and it is, there's no greater sense of gratitude in our heart for what God has done, we've missed the point. Now that's going to be up to you. I'm not going to evaluate this and decide, do I need to preach these 11 chapters over again? All right? I think we'd have a few less folks next week, right? Okay? All right, just in all honesty, I think we would. Yet this is the fitting conclusion, song of praise. And a song of praise in particular that draws our attention to the greatness of God. You'll see as as we read this just a moment ago, uh, not, not that Paul is literally speechless, but you notice in verses 33 through 36, Paul, Paul heaps up descriptive phrases that in essence demonstrate this God is greater than any human language can accurately depict. We don't don't have enough letters in the alphabet. We don't have enough words in the English language. We We are not capable of actually bringing our worship up to a level that is equal to what God's glory deserves. We stand here looking at what is God's gospel and think, I almost don't know what to say about it. So what Paul does for us is, I think he focuses our attention on the nature of God's, grace, uh, God's greatness, and in particular, three important truths about God. 
And it is just that simple. Three important truths about God, about who God is and how God relates to His creation that, that again, is the fitting conclusion to what has been this discussion of the gospel. So, if I think rightly about the gospel, if I understand the gospel and God and myself and all of this in its right context, here's then what I should think about. As we reflect on the gospel, we're going to see three things about God. If you want to take notes, there's going to be blanks to fill in. We'll only get to one this morning. So, number one, as we reflect on the gospel... We see the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. Now notice how he describes this in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. I think, I think a simple, though there could be a lot of words you could use to describe what Paul is describing about God and His nature, it very clearly is describing a God that we would identify as transcendent. Now, I know the word transcendence, that's a pretty big one, right? But yet it's, it's not without use in other contexts. You, you may hear somebody sing beautifully, Maybe you're at a concert of somebody uniquely skilled at some kind of instrument. Maybe there's some other production that you see put on that is done with such skill, that, that is so, uh, so well done and, and, and beautiful and without flaw almost, that you walk out of that experience saying, it was transcendent. What do we mean by that term? Well, I mean, in that sense, we mean it's unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Like it, like it rises above the, the normal. It, it rises above what is the ordinary human experience. And that for sure is one meaning of the term. But when applied to God, when we talk about the transcendence of God, we are talking about something that is essential to His nature. To talk about God's transcendence is to describe God as one who is wholly other than us. Now, I know that's, that's a little anticlimactic, right? You're thinking, all right, preachers, he's, here he goes again, doing that theology talk stuff. I thought you said this was going to be about worship and praise. Well, quite frankly, the two go together. Um, your, your praise is empty without theology, and theology is without significance. If not, then finished with praise, all right? In other words, these two things absolutely go together. To say He's holy other means God is not like us. God is not like us. Now, just stop for just a second and think about that. God is not like us. I know everybody in this room would say, well, yeah, I know, but be honest. How often do your interactions with God and your thoughts about God equal something that is less than what is God being transcendent, right? How often do we do that? How often do we think of God in terms that are beneath Him? How often do we conceive of Him almost as human? 
Now, I know no one in this room would use the phrase, but you've heard it before, right? Some folks who refer to God as who? The big man upstairs, right? I mean, next to using some kind of crass language, there's hardly anything more blasphemous you could say about God. God is not a man, and He is like you. His transcendence means He is wholly other than us. Now, granted, God in creating man ascribed unto us what is His image, but that doesn't mean God, me and God are alike. We don't share, God doesn't share my DNA. Now, I understand somebody may want to go down a whole rabbit hole here, want to talk about Jesus, God incarnate. Okay, I get all that. We're not talking about that, all right? Quite frankly, though, even then, Jesus is wholly other than any other human, right? So the transcendence of God is this quality about God, this reality about God that says He exists in in a realm unto Himself. And here's what the important distinction is, and as we see it kind of fleshed out in verse 33, This means God is of of such greatness, God is of such glory, God is so far beyond me that the only reason I even know that about God is because He's told it to me. Look, the only reason you you and I even know there is a God and a God who is worthy of worship is because He's revealed Himself. This stuff does not come naturally to, to us. Had God not revealed Himself, you and I would know nothing of Him. So this, this is then what, what leads Paul then to express this kind of worship in verse 33. Now, I do want to make just a, a textual note here. Some of you have the New King James. That's the translation you're using. You may even have the King James. And it would be somewhat similar in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In other words, according to that way of translating the phrase, this particular part of the verse, that, that would be that, that in essence, Paul is drawing out what are two facets of how of who God is. That there is depth and riches, or a depth of riches, to the wisdom and knowledge of God. I, I don't think that's quite the right translation. If you have an English standard version, if you have a New American standard uh, version... Believe it or not, in this case, the NIV even seems to get it right, all right? I think he's describing three qualities about God. I think when it says, oh, the depth of the riches, I think it means oh, both of. I think it means, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, here's why I think this, because this whole thing, it's filled with threes. Have you ever noticed how pastors love three points? Say, well, I guess you do, pastor. You never get through them all in one sermon. But yeah, okay, I'll take it. Okay, I guess you like three, maybe. Not really sure. There, there was an old statement that a good sermon is three points in a poem, all right? I know I've got some retired ministers in here who understand that, right? Three points in a poem. That's how we were supposed to preach. Three points Now, is it because God is a triune God? Well, I mean, I don't really know. But I will tell you, threes show up a lot in the Bible. And here's what Paul does. This is is a masterfully crafted text. 
Because I do believe Paul has three sections to this word of praise. Verse 33 is one. Verses 34 and 35, when he quotes from the Old Testament, is another. Verse 36 is yet another. I think he's going to make three different points about the nature of God. And I think within those three different sections, Paul has three sub-points. Now, I can already see your minds working. You're, you're adding it up. All right, yeah, three, three, okay, carry the one. That means, all right, that means pastor really has nine points, all right? If he's going to do this the way he just said, don't worry, it's not going to turn out quite that way. But I think that's what he does. I think he gives us three profound truths about who God is, and in each of those truths, I think he highlights three qualities within it. So I think verse 33 It's not the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I think he's talking about the depth of God's riches. I think he's talking about the depth of God's wisdom. And I think he's talking about the depth of God's knowledge. Now, the word depth, it's used in this context as a way to describe that to which you cannot get to the bottom of. It's beyond you. It's beyond me. When when Paul says, "Oh, oh, the depth... Of, of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's saying, he's saying, when I stop and I think and I consider and I contemplate, when I try and dive down into the waters of what is God's great glory, my, I don't have enough breath to get to the bottom of it. I can't manage this. I can't ever get under what it is. I, I, I never get to a point where I say, I understand everything there is to know about this part about God. And he says this, this is, the, this is the depth of who God is. You cannot get below it. You, you, you never exhaust consideration of it. You never get it all down. God is far too great. So the depth of, again, these three things, the riches of God. I think this is a reference to God's blessing. I think it's a reference to God's grace. I think first and foremost, it is a way of saying, oh, the depths of the, of the glorious grace of God in saving us. This, this blessing of God to reach out to lost, dead sinners and to give us life. And he's, he's reflecting then on, on how, how profound and how rich it is that God has saved us. Can I just suggest something to us this morning? I think as a daily habit, as a day-to-day thing, I don't think you and I, I put myself in the same boat, I don't think we always appreciate the depth of saving grace. I think sometimes we hear sermons say, yes, sinner, dead my trespasses and sin. Yeah, I, I, I get it. God was good to me. But I think there's parts of us that toy with the idea, but you know what? I'm really not that bad of a fella. You know, really, I, I, I was a pretty good gal when I was younger. I, I know this isn't your typical feel-good stuff, all right? So you can tune it out if you want, I guess. You and I have no idea How broken, black, and despicable our hearts really are without Jesus. 
I know you see all kinds of bad things that are done to people. And you think, how could somebody do that? They could do that because without Jesus, they're just like you. That's how. That's how. Because this is what's in us. This is why why Paul reacts with such praise. Paul understands what it's like to be a gross sinner. Paul understands. He knows. He recognizes what he did. And his sin was done in the name of God. He separated children from their parents. He held coats while people were stoned to death. He willingly gave people over to be executed for something that was a lie. Paul believed a lie. He understood. I think maybe some of us who grew up in good homes, good families, trying to be good people, maybe when we think of ourselves like that now, I I think sometimes we fail to appreciate just how profound was our need for the gospel. I want you to think of the worst person you can ever imagine who's committed the worst sins you could ever think of and understand they do not need more of God's grace than you needed in order for you to be saved. The depths the riches of God. Grace is amazing, glorious, and profound. And Paul goes on then to add the language of wisdom. How how deep is his wisdom? The language of wisdom means God's ability to run the world. The means by which he is capable of bringing all of his knowledge to bear on ensuring that the world, according to his sovereignty and the counsel of his will, is managed as he sees fit. The depth of his wisdom. Let me ask you something. We'll get into this in the next section next week. Has anybody here ever questioned God's management of the world? And before you say no, I do some soul searching of the world, of your life. Come on, people. Have you ever told God what would be best for your life? Yes, you have. Oh, you put it in the form of a prayer and you ended it with the spiritual, but Lord, your will be done with a wink, wink, nod, nod, but your will should be my will. All right, it better be at the end of the day. Your will better be my will because that's what makes most sense. Again, Paul draws our attention then to the depth of the riches of God, of the, of the wisdom of God. And then the knowledge of God, and that is nothing short of his omniscience. God knows everything all the time. You're, okay? God, this means God knows everything all the time at every single moment of time. Talk about that at lunch, all right? God knows everything all the time at every single moment of time. Do you know God never has to recall anything? You know, God never gets it stuck in his mind. Oh, who was that person who sang that song that one time, right? I mean, he never does that, right? You know, that that thing that you remember at two in the morning after having the discussion earlier that day, God never does that. Nothing ever pops in God's mind. Did you know that? Nothing ever occurs to God. God never has a light bulb moment. God knows everything there is to know all the time at every moment of time. It's knowledge. And so then this leads Paul then to the second phrase, kind of typical in what would be Hebrew poetry, where the second phrase kind of expands on, clarifies, 
gives finer points to the first. So then he, he reacts by saying, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Some translations use the word inscrutable. And again, it's just Paul's way of trying to describe what can't be described. How unsearchable are his judgments. The judgment there does not refer to like God's wrath judgment. It means his plans, his decrees, his wills. His, the way in which he functions as a sovereign God, his, his providence. How unsearchable is that? You and I can't get to the depths of it. We can't, we can't plumb down below it or get equal to it. We can't get around and behind it. We, we never get a handle on it. We're never able to access it to the fullest degree possible. And even that language of, of it being inscrutable and and I like how the New King James kind of fashions that for us. His ways past finding out. What he means by that is you're not going to, to discover it based on just your own thing. You're, you're not just going to stumble upon it. You're not going to be able to just come up with it. Anything we know about God, about God's world, about the way that it operates... All of it is accessible to us because God has made it accessible to us. Now, I think these, this kind of language is really helpful. Given all that we talked about in chapters 9 through 11 in particular. And if you recall, as we went through all that, as we talked about the challenges of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and the language of God's electing purposes, and yet chapter 9 and then chapter 10 talking about man being responsible for belief uh, in the gospel and, and being held accountable for rejecting the gospel, and, and the way a lot of folks I know wrestle with the tension between these two things, and I think the end of Romans 11 comes to our rescue. I think it comes rushing at us with what is the solution to the problem, whatever theological issue you have, whatever conundrum you find yourself in, whatever point at which you are running up against the wall of God's revelation where you don't really seem to know everything that you would like to know, I would encourage you to memorize Romans 11.33, and it's because His ways are past finding out. God's done stuff that goes beyond our capacity to understand it. Consider. Consider the relationship between our knowledge and God's knowledge. Combine all of human knowledge throughout all of human history up to this point. And that's, that's not even the equivalent of what would be a baby's first burp to God. All the knowledge, all humanity, all throughout history, everything that you and I know, it's the equivalent of like a baby babbling his or her first sounds <laughs> compared to what God knows. There's, there's, a, there's an infinity of knowledge beyond what has been revealed to us. Chew on that, right? 
Think about all the profound realities that are in the world. Think about all the difficult subjects. Think about all of the things that you, you think about this subject and that subject, and you think, wow, that, that is really beyond me. But yet so-and-so seems to understand it, or such-and-such of a, a, of a brilliant individual seems to really grasp these ideas. Imagine the smartest person with the smartest ideas. They can hardly say goo-goo-ga-ga compared to what God knows. His wisdom is beyond ours. His knowledge beyond ours. He is unsearchable in His judgments and His ways past finding out. And let me add to that. That means you and I, this is, this is, where, mm, this, this is where it might get hard. This means you and I are in no position to evaluate God's actions. We have no right to evaluate God's actions. Instead, what should be our response? Trust, obey, worship. Submit ourselves unto Him. This is the transcendence of God. Now, next week we'll get to two more. We'll finish out then this hymn of praise. But perhaps for now, it's a fitting place then to wrap this up and then to think you know, what, what are your own thoughts about God, about your relationship to Him? Would, would you say you, you, you're rightly positioned under God, recognizing Him as the transcendent one? Maybe you'd even say, well, Pastor, I don't even know if I really think about Him like that. Well, that would be the first place to start. I would encourage you to give way more thought to God than what you've given up to this point. Because whatever you've thought about Him is far, far greater than that. What about our own worship of Him? Is it genuine? Thinking about these things really bring us to a greater sense of what would be praise and worship of the glory of our great God? Of course, I'd make an appeal here to anybody here who doesn't know Christ as Savior. This is how you should respond to His Word. That you believe that you are a sinner separated from God. That you ask God to forgive you based on nothing but what Christ has done for you. That He died on the cross, that He rose from the dead. And then in Him and Him alone is salvation. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, if you'd like to know more about that, I'll be down front. I'll be down front after the service is over as well. If you'd like to know more about what it means to know Christ as your Savior, to know the mercy of God, maybe for the rest of us, it is just that first phrase that we would really consider what are the depths of His riches, His grace to us. I think it's fitting that as we close, we're going to sing about grace. It's a song you may be familiar with. It is a song that reminds us about what is the goodness of God's grace, that all of us needed the same amount, and without it, we would not be children of the living God. Let's stand together, and I'll pray, and after I pray, we'll sing together, and you respond as God, by His Spirit and according to His Word, would lead. Father God, we thank You for the gathering of Your people. We thank You for time uh, to come before You, to worship and honor You as our great God. Now we submit ourselves to you and to your word, coming up under it, praying that you, by your spirit, would bring it to bear on our lives, using your word to continue to to shape us and fashion us as you would design for us to be, that we might indeed live lives to your glory. So to you we submit ourselves. Use us as you see fit. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.